It's good evening, everyone. It's good to see you all. We're in First Chronicles 17. First Chronicles 17 tonight. And we had mentioned uh, choosing some passages to look at uh, as we kind of uh, make our way up to the, uh, Christmas. And tonight we'll be in First Chronicles 17. And then we'll go over into a few passages in Luke, but we'll spend the majority of our time here. And this chapter is <clears throat> the account in Chronicles where the Lord establishes this covenant with David. Uh, to give him an eternal uh, dynasty uh, and to set one of his descendants on his throne for all eternity. So this is the covenant given to him <clears throat> where there is the promise uh, that the Christ or the Messiah would come through the family of David. Uh, so as it makes its way, uh, and we talked a lot last week about the seed of the woman, the seed of the woman and then the seed of Abraham. Uh, and then, you know, as we trace that down through the uh, through the through the Old Testament, it ultimately uh, finds its final confirmation in the family of David, right in the family of David. So, so that's why we're in First Chronicles uh, seventeen tonight. Okay, so First Chronicles chapter seventeen is where we're at tonight, <clears throat> and again, uh, as we had mentioned, as you trace the seed of the woman down from Adam. Uh, to Noah, to Shem, then ultimately into Abraham uh, and the nation that would come from him uh, is where the seed of the woman is going to come from. And then as you go from Abraham to Isaac to Jacob, then to the tribe of Judah, and then ultimately uh, to the family of David. And with David, you have this final confirmation or this last link in this chain uh, of specificity in terms of what family and what people that he would come from. And 1 Chronicles 17 is that covenant uh, that God establishes with David that reveals that the Christ would come from his lineage, right? that he would be one of his descendants and that God would give to him the throne of David for all eternity and give him an eternal dominion and an, a uh, dominion that uh, has no borders. So 1 Chronicles 17, we'll read it and then uh, we'll make a few uh, observations uh, here and there. Okay, First Chronicles chapter 17, beginning in verse 1. And it came about that when David dwelt in his house, that David said to Nathan the prophet, Behold, I am dwelling in a house of cedar, but the ark of the covenant of the Lord is under curtains. Then Nathan said to David, Do all that is in your heart, for God is with you. Here at the beginning of this, you have this uh, dilemma that is presented to David or something that comes into his mind. Uh, that when David is observing the nature of his kingdom, observing his uh, own royal residence, David dwells in a house, a house of cedar at this time, but the Ark of the Covenant is dwelling in curtains or in a tent. Uh, we know that when God brought them into the land, when he established the tabernacle, the tabernacle was that place of worship. And in the early days of Israel, when they came into the land, from the time of Sinai up until the time of David, or up until the time of Solomon, that tabernacle was in a temporary building, one that could be uh, erected and then it could be taken down and moved from place to place. So it was uh, in this kind of a nomadic state and it did move from place to place even throughout the time of Israel. We know that at one time it was in Shiloh and then ultimately it came to be found 
in Jerusalem, this under the leadership of David. But as David is observing this and observing his own residency, and then observing uh, the uh, residency of the Ark of the Covenant, this central place to their worship, he sees this disparity between his own house, right, being a permanent structure, being a house of cedar, and then the house of the Lord being made of curtains. And so this is brought to his mind and to his attention, and he brings up this dilemma to the prophet Nathan, right? Asking him what he thinks about these things. And this is why Nathan tells him, do all that is in your heart for God is with you. That what you're seeing and observing and the desires, he knows that his desire is to bring glory and honor to God. And so this is why Nathan says, do what is in your heart. God is with you, right? What you are desiring and seeking after is something that is promoting the glory of God. So do these things. And so this is what David is going to do then. Then verse three, it came about the same night that the word of God came to Nathan saying, go and tell David, my servant, thus says the Lord, you shall not build a house for me to dwell in. For I have not dwelt in a house since the day that I brought up Israel to this day, but I have gone from tent to tent and from one dwelling place to another. In all places where I have walked with all of Israel, have I spoken a word with any of the judges of Israel, whom I commanded to shepherd my people, saying, Why have you not built for me a house of cedar? Here, that night, the word of God comes to Nathan, and this is the word that the Lord gives to Nathan the prophet to go and then give to David. And this word is to tell David <clears throat> that he is not to build a house for God to dwell in. Now, this is not that this was an evil desire or an evil thought that came into David's mind, but it's not in the will of God for David to be the one who is going to build the temple. God's desire and God's will is that his son Solomon would be the one that would build the permanent temple, right? Solomon's temple, as it was uh, called. David would be the one who comes up with the idea, the plan to do so. David would also be the one that makes the preparations in terms of uh, receiving the uh, uh, oracles in terms of what it should be like, and then providing all the material so that everything is prepared so that Solomon, once he takes the throne, is able to accomplish this. So Nathan, or the Lord tells Nathan to tell David that he is not going to build this house for him to dwell in, and that this house is not essential to God, right? Not essential to him and not essential to his worship, right? If it was necessary for the worship of God, then God would have established this many years before, that there were plenty of judges and there were plenty of men who preceded uh, David who could have erected and God could have instructed them to build the temple. And yet all this time, God has not done so, but has instead gone from tent to tent, from one dwelling place to another, right? This is the way that God has chosen to reveal himself and chosen that at this time, his worship would be conducted in this way. Now, again, not that David's desire is an evil desire, right? We know that it's a good desire because ultimately God accomplishes it and fulfills it in the person of Solomon. And we know that when Solomon built that temple and they dedicated it to the Lord, the Lord honored that temple with his presence, right? By sending it down. And so it was good and right for him to do so. However, it's not essential or necessary for the worship of God, right? Because they haven't had one to this day, and yet now he has this desire to build it. Then verse 7, Now therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, to be leader over my people Israel. I have been with you wherever you have gone, and have cut off all of your enemies from before you. 
And I will make you a name like the name of the great ones who are in the earth. I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and not be moved again. And the wicked will not waste them any more as formerly, even from the day that I commanded judges to be over my people Israel. And I will subdue all your enemies. Moreover, I tell you that the Lord will build a house for you when your days are fulfilled that you must go and be with your fathers, that I will set up one of your descendants after you, who will be of your sons, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build for me a house, and I will establish his throne forever. I will be his father, and he shall be my son. And I will not take my loving kindness away from him, as I took it from him who was before you. But I will settle him in my house and in my kingdom forever, and his throne shall be established forever." According to all these words and according to all this vision, so Nathan spoke to David. Here we have the purpose or the reason for this desire that is in David, him announcing this to Nathan, his desire to build the house, then Nathan telling him, no, you're not going to build the house, and now God is going to give this signal blessing to David, right? He's going to exalt him and grant to him a promise that will... uh, establish him and his family uh, for for many, many years. And that is that God will build up his house, right? That is the house of David. He tells him, he reminds him in verse 7, that I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, to be leader over my people Israel. David's founding or his uh, condition in which he was raised out of was a very humble condition. He was a shepherd. His family was... Uh, of no account. The city in which they uh, were in was a city of no account, being there the city of Bethlehem. And there, even in the household, we know that David was the youngest of the brothers and that he was the one that was charged as the shepherd who was out watching over the sheep. This is what he was. So he was nothing. He was a nobody, right? He was of a very humble beginning. And yet God took him from this very humble state and made him leader over my people Israel. He went from being a shepherd of livestock to being the shepherd over the entire household of the people of Israel, that being the flock of God. And then God has been with him wherever he has gone. God has blessed him. God has prospered him, right? God established him in this way. He cut off all of his enemies before him, right? Whenever enemies rose up against David, whether those enemies be internal such as Saul, or whether those enemies were external, such as the Philistines and other uh, enemies that rose up against them, God delivered all of his enemies into his hands, right? He cut all of them off. And again, all of this because of the grace and mercy of God. Was there anything in David that marked him or set him apart or distinguished him from anyone else in Israel, right? In terms of his own nature, in terms of his sin, he is common with everyone else. Was he more of an Israelite than all the other Israelites? He was of a common descent from Abraham, from Isaac, from Jacob. In the tribe of Judah, he was not more of a Judahite than the rest of the men in the tribe of Judah. So why David and why not someone else? And what is it that makes the distinction between men? I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion." It depends not on human will or exertion. It depends on God who has mercy, as it says in Romans chapter 9. This is why David was lifted up out of this position of humility, of 
He was uh, ignoble. He was anonymous. He was not a man of high repute or of great reputation. He was a nobody. And yet he became the chief prince in all of Israel, all by the grace and mercy of God. God's choosing of him and God's exalting him and establishing him in that way. And then God cut off all of his enemies so that everyone who opposed him was thwarted and failed all because of the kindness of God. God's mercy and God's kindness given to him out of God's grace and mercy. He tells him that he will make him a name like the name of the great ones who are in the earth. <clears throat> right? The great ones, the great leaders uh, over human history, the great kings of the earth, right? They have a name that has renown, that is known far and wide, that many people know who they are, such as men like Alexander the Great or Julius Caesar or other great men throughout human history. They have these great names. There's a memory of them. There's a knowledge of their great deeds, of their person, of their kingdom in these ways. Well, he's going to make David like one of these men, but even greater, right? Because here we're talking about David tonight. How many years afterwards? Nearly 3,000 years after the life of David, we're talking about him and his significance, right? His importance in the chain of redemption, in the bringing about of the Christ into the world. And as long as uh, life continues on this earth, and then even in the life to come, Christ will always be the lion of the tribe of Judah. He will always be, right, the stump or the shoot that arose from Jesse, right? He will sit on David's throne for all eternity. So this name of David is given eternal significance because of its relationship to Jesus Christ. And this is the honor that he bestowed upon him. That will not be true of any other king in human history. Alexander the Great or Julius Caesar or any of these other great kings in human history their descendants will never sit on their throne for all eternity. There's only one person that this will be true of, and it is our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And whose throne does he sit on? He sits upon David's throne, right? He has this eternal kingdom that is called the kingdom of David or the throne of David. And this is the way that God has honored David, right? Not that it's David's kingdom, it's Christ's kingdom, but he gives it after this name of David as a reminder that he descended from David, from David, and David certainly served as a type of Christ. Verse 9, I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and not be moved again. And the wicked will not waste them any more as formerly, even from the day that I commanded judges to be over my people Israel, and I will subdue all your enemies. Here, God will prosper David's kingdom. He will prosper it so that the people during his reign and during the reign of his son Solomon, that during these two men, the rule of David and the rule of Solomon, there was, relatively speaking, more quiet, more peace, more rest, more harmony, less enemies invading them, subduing them, taking them uh, hostage, taking them as captives into foreign lands. Instead, they dwelt in their own place. They lived on their own land, in their own homes. They enjoyed the fruit of their own labors. Others did not come and eat from the fields that they had planted. They did not drink from the wine that they had uh, squeezed out of their own grapes. They did not come and take their livestock and ravage their families. But rather, He gave them stability. He gave them security 
because God was with David as king over his people. He ruled over them with justice and righteousness, and he subdued those enemies that would be a threat to them, both internal and external, so that their people did not waste away anymore as formerly. All right, we remember from the book of Judges that during the time of the Judges, there was this continual cycle over and over and over again of the judge rising up, God delivering the people through the ministry of the judge. But then when the judge died, what would happen to the people? There would be this uh, corruption that would rise up again, and then God would send enemies, foreigners, to come to harass them, uh, to judge them, to uh, do all sorts of horrible things to them. But here he says that this will not happen during the time of David, and it doesn't happen during the time of Solomon. Now, all of this is typical or symbolic of the kingdom of Christ, the way that Christ rules over his kingdom and over his church, because he does not allow our enemies to uh, have dominion or power over us. Right? He may allow them to exert a temporary influence over us, a temporary power, but ultimately he will use whatever they do for our good. And then in the life to come, there will be no more wicked to harass the people of God, but we will dwell with him for all eternity in perfect peace, right? perfect quiet, perfect rest with the Lord for all eternity. Then he says, moreover, I tell you that the Lord will build a house for you. You want to build a house for me, but instead I'm going to build a house for you. Here, the play on words is this term house, because when David is wanting to build a house for the Lord, he means it in terms of a building or a structure. But here, when the Lord is promising to build a house for David, he means it in terms of a dynasty, that God will give to David a dynasty that will be an eternal dynasty. He will build up his house or his household so that it will endure throughout all generations and for all eternity. And this is a big part of the book of First and Second Chronicles. It is tracing for us the faithfulness of God in the line of David, right? In the house of David, that though there was great sin and though God judged the people and he judged the southern kingdom where David's throne was found and the king, the Davidic king, was taken captive into a foreign land, yet God did not uh, fail to keep his promises. But he was with them and ultimately he brought the people back and this line was preserved throughout those generations, right? God was faithful and it was necessary because ultimately the Christ must come from the house of David. And God did establish that house, though it was felled as a tree in the forest and there was only a stump that remained and the stump was burned, yet God still ultimately brought a shoot out from that stump and that, that shoot grew into a new tree that was greater than all of the kingdoms of this world, in this being the kingdom of Christ. He will build a house for David. When will he do this? When your days are fulfilled, that you may go to be with your fathers, that I will set up one of your descendants after you, who will be of your sons, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build for me a house, and I will establish his throne forever. I will be his father, and he shall be my son and I will not take my loving kindness away from him as I took it from him who was before you. But I will settle him in my house and in my kingdom forever, and his throne shall be established forever. Here, 
God will do this after his days are fulfilled, after the days of David, meaning after his life comes to an end and he goes to be with his fathers, right? He passes out of this life and he passes into the life to come. And he's with his fathers, with his father, Jesse, with his father, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, with his father, Judah. After those days, when he goes to be with his fathers, then God will raise up one of his descendants after you. And he will be one of your sons, and I will establish his kingdom. One of David's offspring will be raised up, and God will give to him this eternal kingdom. Now, his immediate son is Solomon. And in Solomon, there is also a preeminent type of Christ. And this is why God did not permit David to build the temple, but Solomon to build the temple as a way of showing that it would be this descendant of David who would build the temple of the Lord, who would build the true temple of the Lord. Because the true temple of the Lord is not a building found in Jerusalem in the Middle East. Who is the true temple of the Lord? It is the people of God, right? The people of God built upon the foundation who is our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And he is the only true builder of the true temple of the Lord. Solomon built the temple as this descendant of David to be a symbol that Christ would be the ultimate builder of the temple of God. So after David's life, after he dies and goes to be with his fathers, then God will raise up this descendant after him one of his sons, and God would establish his kingdom. He will build for me a house, and I will establish his throne forever. Again, the immediate context would be Solomon building the house, but the ultimate fulfillment of this would be Christ building the church, Christ building the true people of God for all eternity, and his throne will be forever, forever. All it took was 40, 50 years after the time of David for them to know that this cannot be referring to Solomon because Solomon's throne did not endure forever because what ultimately happened to Solomon? The same thing that happened to David. Solomon died just as David died. And if Solomon is dead, then he cannot rule and reign forever, right? He cannot sit on this throne forever. So it must have reference to a future descendant or a future son, Not the immediate son, Solomon, but one who is distant still further out, who would come later. And in terms of the life of David, it would be 900 years after the life of David that he would bring this son into the world, which reminds us that the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promises as some count slowness. We hear that and we see that and we think, why is God so delayed in bringing about his promises? But we are told God is not slow to do so. He does it according to his own wisdom in his perfect timing. And even if the promise is delayed by many, many years, and it seems that the promise is going to fall to the ground and that it will not be fulfilled, what always happens in due time? He always fulfills every one of his promises. We have a uh, repository of such promises in the word of God where God gave these promises that seemed impossible to fulfill to many people over the years, and some of them took many, many years for those things to be brought to their fulfillment. And yet every one of them ultimately is fulfilled, and this was certainly the case in the life of David as well. In verse 13, he says, I will be his father, and he shall be my son. 
I will be his father and he shall be my son. Again, this is symbolic of <clears throat> the relationship between God the Father and God the Son. That the Messiah, the Christ, would not merely be uh, a man, but he would be uh, God in human flesh. God in human flesh. Now certainly, again, this is true of God's relationship to David and God's relationship to Solomon. That They were sons in a sense, but what they were as sons to God are, is merely a similar type of the greater relationship that Jesus Christ has to God the Father. Because he is a son to the Father in a way that David and Solomon could never be. Because his sonship is seen in that he has the exact nature of God the Father. He is the representation of God the Father to us. David and Solomon could represent God only by way of symbol. But Christ represents him by, in terms of his own nature. Right In the person of Christ, we see God the Father because he is the exact representation of God the Father. And God will never take his loving kindness away from him as he took it away from him who was before you. Here, the reference to Saul. God's loving kindness will not depart from David, from Solomon, or from this ultimate descendant of David as it did from Saul. Saul was given the kingdom, but then the kingdom was taken away from him. But Christ will be given the kingdom, and will God ever take that away from him? Will God ever choose at some later day to reject Christ and take his loving kindness away from him? Right? It is the loving kindness of God that gave David this throne, that gave Solomon that throne, and ultimately that gave Jesus Christ that throne. Is there any danger that just as God took that throne from Saul, he will take it from David's descendant? And the answer is no. He would never take his loving kindness away from Christ. Why was the loving kindness taken from Saul? It was because of his rebellion, because of his own sins, because he failed to do what was good and proper in the sight of God. But will Christ ever do that? Will he ever fail to obey his father? and to do the will of God? Will he commit rebellion and sedition against his father? Of course not. He will never do such things. Verse 14, I will settle him in my house and in my kingdom forever, and his throne shall be established forever. He will be settled in God's house, meaning among God's people. This is where Christ has his rule and reign. We are the kingdom of Christ, and he is settled and established among us for all eternity. So this is what the Lord will do. Now a couple of cross references. 1 Corinthians chapter 3. 1 Corinthians chapter 3. And this would be in reference to the temple, to the temple or the house that will be built by David's son, meaning the Christ. 1 Corinthians 3, verses 5 to 9. What then is Apollos, and what is Paul? Servants through whom you believed, even as the Lord gave opportunity to each one. I planted, Apollos watered, but God was causing the growth. So then neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything, but God causes the growth. Now he who plants and he who waters are one, but each will receive his own reward according to his own labor. For we are God's fellow workers... You are God's field, God's building. Then verse 16. Do you not know that you are a temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwells in you? If any man destroys the temple of God, God will destroy him. For the temple of God is holy 
And that is what you are. So here, the church is the building of God. And the building here is the temple of God where the Spirit of God resides. And the Spirit is the Spirit of Christ, the Spirit of Christ who is within us and who is among us. And if anyone destroys this temple, what will God do to him? He's going to destroy them, right? Because the temple is holy and we are that temple. Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians 2. 19 to 22. Here we see that this temple is comprised of both believing Jews and believing Greeks, Jews and Gentiles, all who are believers in our Lord Jesus Christ, built upon that foundation. Christ is the cornerstone of the temple, and everyone who is built or placed on that cornerstone comprises this temple of God, whether they be Jew or Gentile. 2.19, 2.19, so then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with saints and are of God's household, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole building being fitted together is growing into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together into a dwelling of God in the Spirit. So there the Gentiles are no longer strangers and aliens, but fellow citizens with all of the saints, whether they are Jewish or Gentile, it doesn't matter. All are built on the same foundation of the apostles and prophets. And what is the central message of all the prophets and all the apostles? Salvation can be found in no one else. There is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved, only in Jesus Christ. And those who believe in Christ for salvation are built upon this cornerstone and they are a stone that is a part of this temple that God is building, this holy temple of the Lord, which here is clearly, it is the church of Jesus Christ. This is the temple and this is the temple that Christ builds, right? Christ will build this temple. The son of David will be the builder of this temple. Also, Romans chapter 1, verse 3. Romans 1, 3. Romans chapter 1, verse 3. The gospel also does teach the two natures of Christ, both His divine and His human nature. And according to His human nature, He is descended from David. Romans 1, 3. Concerning His Son who was born of a descendant of David, according to the flesh. So according to the human nature, he is a descendant of David. And in David, David is the explicit name mentioned, but in that name is also comprised the name of Judah, the name of Jacob, the name of Isaac, and ultimately the name of Abraham. All of them are found there in David. And if we go to Matthew chapter 1, Matthew 1 Matthew, at the beginning of his Gospels, lays out this genealogy of Christ, connecting him to David, to David, and to Abraham. In chapter 1, verse 1, the record of the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Right. So this genealogy of Jesus that is set out in Matthew is there to prove two things. One, 
that Jesus is the son of Abraham, and secondly, that he is the son of David, and he is the fulfillment of both of these covenants given to these great men. He is the seed of Abraham that we talked about last week, and he is the seed of David, or the descendant of David, who will sit upon his throne. Then also, verses 5 and 6, 5 and 6 of Matthew 1 Salmon was the father of Boaz by Rahab. Boaz was the father of Obed by Ruth. And Obed the father of Jesse. And Jesse was the father of David the king. And then also verse uh, verse 17. So all the generations from Abraham to David are 14 generations. From David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations. And from the deportation to Babylon to the Messiah, 14 generations. Abraham, David, then to the Messiah. Okay, and then he is the one who will receive this throne from his father David. Luke chapter 1. And we'll come back to this in a bit. Luke 1. Verse 32. Luke 1, 32 says, He will be great, and He will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give Him the throne of His father David, and He will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and His kingdom will have no end. So there, this kingdom, He is the Son of the Most High, meaning He is the Son of God in human flesh, and then according to His flesh, He will have this throne of his father David, and he will reign on it for all eternity. Hebrews 1 verse 5, in terms of his sonship. Hebrews chapter 1 verse 3, not 5. Actually, we'll just start reading in verse 1. Hebrews 1 1. God, after He spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets in many portions and in many ways, in these last days has spoken to us in His Son, whom He appointed heir of all things, through whom also He made the world. He is the radiance of His glory, the exact representation of His nature, and upholds all things by the word of His power. When He made purification of sins, He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. There, as the Son of God... He is the radiance of the glory of the Father and the exact representation of His nature. So if we would know God the Father, how do we come to know Him? Who is the one who reveals Him to us? Well, God spoke to the fathers in the prophets, but now He's spoken to us in His Son. And when we see the Son, Jesus Christ, we see the exact representation, the radiance of the glory of God the Father. He is the one by whom we come to know God. Okay, then one last passage, Daniel chapter 7. Daniel 7, and this relates to his kingdom being eternal, an eternal kingdom. Daniel 7, 13 to 14. There it says, I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming. And he came up to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom, that all the peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve him. 
His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away, and His kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. So here, this Son of Man who comes to the Ancient of Days, right, comes with the clouds of heaven, right? So it's obvious that He is Himself divine because He's coming to the Ancient of Days, yet He also is the Son of Man, and He's given this kingdom, this dominion that is everlasting, and it also covers the entire globe, right? It, is, uh, it, it has no end in terms of its scope. Whereas David's kingdom was confined to this portion of land in the Middle East, right? The land of Israel. But Christ's kingdom will have no borders, right? It will uh, cover the entire globe, right? As the water covers the sea. The knowledge of the glory of God will cover the earth as the water covers the sea. So it will be with Christ's kingdom, right? And this will be eternal, everlasting. It will never come to an end and it will never be destroyed. David's kingdom ultimately was destroyed. His temporal, physical kingdom on earth. But Christ's kingdom will never be destroyed. It will be eternal and will endure for generation to generation. Okay, then 1 Chronicles 17, verse 16. Now David's response to this uh, vision or to this knowledge given to him, the covenant that God has established with him. 16 to 19. Then David the king went in and sat before the Lord and said, Who am I, O Lord God, and what is my house that you have brought me this far? This was a small thing in your eyes, O God, but you have spoken to your servant's house for a great while to come, and have regarded me according to the standard of a man of high degree, O Lord God. What more can David still say to you concerning the honor bestowed on your servant? For you know your servant." O Lord, for your servant's sake, and according to your own heart, you have wrought all this greatness to make known all of these great things. David's response is praise, is thanksgiving. It is an awareness of his own um, limitations, how undeserving he is that God would do this for him. Right? This is the way that we ought to respond when we receive grace and mercy from God. We ought to be struck by our, un our own unworthiness, that who am I that you would do this for me? Why would you be so kind, so compassionate to me? And we ought to do this all the time. When we think about our salvation, why would God be merciful to us, to sinners, to those who have sinned against Him, who deserve to be condemned for all eternity and go to hell? Are we better than any other men? Are we more righteous than any other men? Are we not all deserving of God's wrath, just like every other person on the face of the earth? And yet, what has God done for us? He has lifted us up out of this pit. He has placed us on solid ground. He has made us, instead of being objects of His wrath, we are now objects of His grace and mercy. We are no longer His enemies. Now, we are His dearly beloved children. And was this because God saw in us some spark of goodness, right? Some element that was better than other men. And that's why He took us instead of taking other men. No, it has nothing to do with any of us. And that's what David is recognizing. He has received this mercy from God and he sees and understands, who am I, Lord? Right? What is my house? Right? We're nobody. That you would do this for us, that you would give to me this honor, this glory, this uh, renown and privilege that no one else has ever experienced. What other man has experienced this kind of kingship? It wasn't given to Saul. 
And then in terms of all the kings that come after David, none of them have the same position as David, right? Because he is the root of this covenant to bring the Messiah through this family. It all begins with David. And why has God done this for him? He could have done it for someone else, but he didn't. He did it for David. Were there not other families from the tribe of Judah that God could have chosen that were greater, that were of more renown, that were wealthier, that had more power and strength? And then what about his own brothers? Didn't David have many brothers? And why was David chosen, but not the other ones? Right when they were older than him, stronger than him, maybe they were wiser than him, and yet God has chosen him to be the object of this grace and mercy. And he rightly sees his own unworthiness and the kindness and the compassion and the free grace and mercy of God. He says, this is a small thing for you to do, God, because he knows that God can do all things. But you have spoken of me for a great while. You're speaking of me in, in terms of eternity. You are giving to me renown and glory and honor and exalting me for all eternity, right? To a position that no other men are going to be raised in this way, right? This is what God has done for David. And as we just read from Matthew, in terms of those that came out of Abraham, there's Abraham and there's David, right? These two are lifted up in this exalted position among all of the Israelites, right? How many people came from Abraham? Millions upon millions upon millions. And of all of those millions of people, who was chosen, what man was chosen to be the king and to be, have this throne and that the Christ would come and sit on his throne? Only David. Only David was chosen. So he sees that this is something that he does not deserve but he's done this for me. You've made me great for all generations, right? What more can I say concerning the honor that you bestowed upon me, right? How great is it? He says, because you know your servant. You know who I am. You know my own heart. You know my own weaknesses. You know all of my failings. You know my nature. You know the way that I was born. And yet still you have done this. And this is the way it is for all of us as well. You know your servant, God. You know who we are. You know how weak we are how much we fail, right? You know how undeserving we are, that we are but dust. And yet, what has God done for us? Has He not promised to exalt us and to seat us in heavenly places with Christ Jesus for all eternity? To give to us an eternal kingdom? To give us access to Him through His beloved Son? And that we will sit on thrones judging the world with our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And didn't Jesus take our nature upon himself as well? He united our nature to himself so that we would be united to him for all eternity. So though, again, none of us have been given a dynasty as David has, yet the implications of this dynasty are true of us as well, because we are a kingdom of priests to God. We will be kings and queens in the world to come, and we will rule and reign with Jesus Christ. So all of this, what he's saying is just as applicable to us. Why would God do this for us, seeing that we are worms, we are maggots, we are worthless, we, we are nothing. And yet here God has been so kind and merciful to us. We have to have this understanding of our own salvation, our own unworthiness, 
and the mercy of God, the greatness of God's compassion to us. We should be longing to get a greater glimpse and understanding of these things all the days of our life. Verse 20, O Lord, there is no one like you, nor is there any God besides you, according to all that we have heard with our ears. And what one nation in earth is like your people Israel, whom God went to redeem for himself as a people, to make you a name by great and terrible things, and driving out nations from before your people, who you redeemed out of Egypt? For your people Israel you made for your own people forever, and you, O Lord, became their God. Here again, now he's thinking of who God is. There's no one like you, he says. There's no other God besides you, according to all that we have heard with our ears. There are many gods in the nations, so-called gods, but are there any gods that can compare to the Lord God and to what He does? None of them compare in terms of glory, in terms of His attributes, and certainly not in the works that He does, because the gods of the nations are false gods. They cannot do anything. They have eyes, but they cannot see, ears, but they cannot hear, right? They cannot uh, help their worshipers. They cannot answer their prayers. They cannot do anything for them. But the true God, our God, He can do all things. And He does do great and marvelous and wonderful things on behalf of His people. Right? In terms of Israel's history, He redeemed them from Egypt. And in doing that, He symbolized the great redemption that He would give to us when He delivered us from our sins. Is that not a great work of God to deliver His people from their sins? What man can do that? What man, through all of his strength and effort, is able to forgive and to bring about atonement for one sin? No one can bring atonement for any sin. What about giving life to those who are dead? No man can do this, but who can do it? God can do it. With man it is impossible, but with God all things are possible. This is what David sees and understands. The greatness of God in what he has done. He has taken this nation and brought them out of this other land, given them into their own possession. He has made them greater than all the nations of the, of the earth. And now he has set David as prince over them. And he's going to bring from David and from this nation his Christ into the world to be a blessing to all the nations and to give to him this eternal kingdom. Then verse 23. Now, O Lord, let the word that you have spoken concerning your servant and concerning his house be established forever and do as you have spoken. Let your name be established and magnified forever, saying, The Lord of hosts is God of Israel, even a God to Israel, and the house of David your servant is established before you. For you, O God, have revealed to your servant that you will build for him a house. Therefore your servant has found courage to pray before you. Now, O Lord, you are God, and have promised this good thing to your servant." And now it has pleased you to bless the house of your servant, and it may continue forever before you. For you, O Lord, have blessed, and it is blessed forever. Now he concludes with a prayer that everything God has spoken and revealed to him, that God will bring it about. God, will you accomplish all that you have revealed to me? He receives this promise from God, and now that promise is what is filling his prayers and his requests to God. And when we are praying in this way, we have assurance that God will answer us. He's already told us He's going to do it. So He has courage, boldness to ask God for great things because God has already told him, this is what I'm going to do for you. And so now David has boldness to pray for such things. Right? It would be presumptuous for him 
to ask for these things, to pray for these things without God revealing it to him. Just as it would be presumptuous for us to dare think that we can draw near to the throne of grace, to think that we can call God our father, to even dare to claim to be his children. But do we have the right to be called children of God, to refer to each other in that way? And who gives us that right? It is our Lord Jesus Christ. It's because the Bible tells us that we have the right to be called children of God. Do we have a right to boldly approach the throne of grace? Absolutely. And we know that because the Bible tells us to. So we have courage to do those things because God tells us, this is what I want you to do. This is how I want you to pray. And then we are invited to come and bring those requests to him. That's what David is doing here. I have promised to establish your house, to make your name great. And now David has boldness and courage to pray, God, fulfill your word. I'm not being presumptuous. I'm just asking you to do what you've already promised to do for me. And ultimately, when David is praying this, for whose glory is he seeking? Is he seeking David's glory or is he seeking the glory of another? He's seeking the glory of God and he's seeking the glory of Christ. And this should be our desire. And in that glory, David receives glory as well, right? This is the way that we pursue glory and honor by pursuing the glory and honor of God and pursuing the glory and honor of Christ. And when honor is given to Christ, that honor and glory and exaltation spills over into his people as well. This is the way that we attain these great things is by seeking God's will, seeking his glory, seeking his honor as the means of which God bestows these things, these good things to us. So David now is praying that God would do these things. Okay, and then a couple of passages. First, Luke chapter 1. Luke 1, this passage in 1 Chronicles 17 and the corresponding uh, parallel passage in 2 Samuel chapter 7. These are very significant chapters in the Old Testament. And these chapters are no doubt these promises in the minds of the saints whenever God begins to reveal Himself just before the birth of Christ, right? That they know about, their mind is informed about these promises and they're waiting for the consolation of Israel. They're waiting for God to raise up this seed, the seed of Abraham and the seed of David and to give to him this throne and kingdom. And they're talking about these things when the birth of Christ is announced to them. Luke 1, 26. Luke 1, 26. says, Now in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city in Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin engaged to a man whose name was Joseph, of the descendants of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. And coming in, he said to her, Greetings, favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was very perplexed at this statement, and kept pondering what kind of salutation this was. The angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb, and bear a son, and you shall name him Jesus. He will be great, and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will have no end." Mary said to the angel, How can this be, since I am a virgin? The angel answered and said to her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. 
And for that reason, the holy child shall be called the Son of God. And behold, even your relative Elizabeth has also conceived a son in her old age. And she who was called barren is now in her sixth month. For nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, the bond slave of the Lord, may it be done to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. So there, this child, the seed of the woman, and here what we read last week from Genesis 3.15 is fulfilled in Mary's presence. She is the mother of the Lord. The seed of the woman uh, is our Lord Jesus Christ, who was born of the Virgin Mary. And here also he is given the throne of his father David, and he will sit on it and rule over the house of Jacob forever. Then also Luke 1, 67 to 69. 67 to 69. This is the prophecy of Zechariah after the birth of John. It says, And his father Zacharias was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited us and accomplished redemption for his people, and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of David his servant. As he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, salvation from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us to show mercy toward our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath which he swore to Abraham, our father, to grant us that we being rescued from the hand of our enemies might serve him without fear and holiness and righteousness before him all of our days. So here when Zacharias is praying and blessing God, he is talking about how God has fulfilled these covenants, these promises that He gave in the Old Testament to Abraham and then to David, to raise up from the house of David His servant, who would be the horn of salvation, who would be the one that would deliver them and be the one who brings mercy, salvation, forgiveness of sins, so that the people of God might serve God without fear in holiness and righteousness all of our days. This is our Lord Jesus Christ. Then one last passage, Luke 2, Luke 2, verses 8 to 14. Luke 2, 8. It says, In the same region there were some shepherds staying out in the fields and keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord suddenly stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terribly frightened. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy, which will be for all the people. For today in the city of David there has been born for you a Savior who is Christ the Lord. This will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there appeared with the angel a multitude of heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among men with whom He is pleased. So there, it is in the city of David, right, as we read from 1 Chronicles 17, that the Savior who is Christ the Lord is born. And that is not, again, insignificant. We know as well from Micah chapter 5, verse 2, from our study of Micah. So, this promise then, uh, this covenant made in 1 Chronicles 17, finds its fulfillment in our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And this is why when He was born or when His birth was announced, these things are being brought up 
a remembrance, a reminder that this was the covenant God had made 900 years before to the father David. And now God is fulfilling those promises in his Christ.